Hello and welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. Today we have a lot to talk about. We are back in the thick of things. The main characters are back on the primary stage. Most of the um, fighting has brought us to this point, and now we have this climactic battle. When last we left the Iliad and all of our characters and everything, uh, Hera had successfully seduced Zeus and gotten him out of the picture for a little while, opening up the possibility for Poseidon and Hera and several of the other Greek-aligned gods and goddesses to mount a bit of a defense now that the Trojans were very much beating against the wall protecting the Greek ships. Um, Hector was stunned and taken out of the battle by a shot from Ajax, although Hector and Ajax have kind of been circling around each other without actually being able to get each other for quite a while now, all the way back to the duel, way back in Book 7. Um, and here we are. The Greeks are still in their desperate position, trying desperately to hold the wall against the Trojans. The Trojans are regrouping and getting pushed back a little bit by the new Greek offensive. And here at the beginning of Iliad 15, Zeus wakes up. Like, this is literally how Iliad 15 starts. Zeus wakes up and he's like, Damn it. I've been deceived. Hera, darn it, you tricked me and seduced me, and obviously this is, you know, an elaborate ploy to get me out of the out of the war for a little bit. Um, he actually uses stronger language here. Uh, and I should sort of address this, I suspect. Uh, this is line 15 or so. Um, Zeus wakes up, and he sees Hera, and he scowls. Hera, you scheming bitch, this trick of yours has taken Hector out and routed his army, and you may be the first to profit from your plot when I whip the living daylights out of you. Or don't you remember when I strung you up with anvils hanging from your feet and gold unbreakable bands on your wrists? You dangled in the air among the clouds, and all the gods on high Olympus protested, but none could come to your rescue. If anyone tried, I'd send him sailing off our balcony. There wouldn't be much left when he hit the ground." We should probably talk about this. So, we've been kicking around the idea of misogyny in this text for a little while. Virtually any time a woman shows up, we're inevitably going to end up talking about the misogynistic Greek world. Um, we should not mince words here. Zeus is very clearly threatening Hera with what we would call spousal abuse. Um, like, of the divine variety, for sure. Like, it's pretty impressive that he's managed to, you know, has apparently abused her in the past by stringing her up by her arms and, like, dangling golden anvils off of her feet. Like, dang, that's at least creative. Um, but we should emphasize that this is kind of a reality of the Greek world in the same way that, you know, passing Briseis back and forth as a prize is a reality of the Greek world. Um, I should emphasize, though, as I have emphasized throughout, that there is a major difference here between the reality of a misogynistic culture, which is in fact what Homer is wrestling with here, and prescribing misogyny in that culture. Um, to sort of give you an idea of what I'm talking about here, I should stress there are a lot of myths in the Greek world and a lot of myths surrounding the Greek world that are prescriptively misogynistic. Um, Hesiod in the Theogony and in the Works of Days emphasizes that women were a curse placed on mankind by gods who were trying to get back at them. That's prescriptive misogyny. Um, Hesiod is stressing you should treat women like crap because they are the worst. 
likewise, there are a lot of myths that depict women as being terrible in one way or another. Um, for example, the tradition of Jason and the Argonauts um, involves the wit barbarian witch Medea, who apparently has no compunction about cutting up her brother into small pieces and like distributing him in the water to distract her to distract her father, or alternatively getting this one king's daughters to chop him up into little pieces and boil him in a cauldron. Long story. Um, Medea also goes so far as to murder her own children when Jason like divorces her. So Medea is a villain and very much sort of part of a mythological tradition that treats women as villains, as evil, as tempting and destructive and potentially bad to men all across the board. Um, but I want to stress here that Homer is a lot more restrained about this, where those myths sort of insist upon misogyny, enforce misogyny, stress that women are a inferior group of people who should be looked down upon and should be rejected and whose every effort is sort of like destructive or problematic or villainous. You'll notice Homer never does this. Homer is more than happy to depict women getting passed around like objects, like Chryseis or Briseis. He is more than happy to depict women who are in difficult relationships and who are being either abused or sort of unloved by their husbands. Take, for example, Helen resenting Paris, or here with Hera sort of getting mad at Zeus. But you'll also notice that these Homer also has numerous positive depictions of women. Um, Athena is doing badass stuff all the time and can definitely keep up in warfare, which kind of undermines anyone who wants to attack Homer for being a misogynist for rejecting Aphrodite's role in the, role in the war. Um, likewise, Andromache, as we talked about, is a seemingly perfect match for Hector. She is a strong woman in her own right, um, despite the fact that she does depend upon Hector. Um... As, and as much as we sort of like point to Hera and say, look at this, this is, you know, a major problem. Hera is a horrible person, and this is apparently this idea of women that Greeks have. Notice that even here with the abuse, it's hard to get terribly mad at Zeus over this. Like, maybe that's just me. At the very least, let me explain myself here. This is more than just Zeus being an asshole and Homer being behind him about this. Like, that's not what's being depicted here. Zeus is an asshole. And Homer has frequently stressed that Zeus is an asshole. Um, like, you know, the speech that we talked about last time, where Hera comes up to him all sexy-like in order to seduce him, and Zeus responds with, you know, oh, just think of all those other women that I slept with, who you were totally more hot than. Like, Zeus totally screws up being a decent person there, and Homer draws attention to that. Homer is not Team Zeus here. I'm not sure he's Team Hera. That might be going considerably farther than, than the text is willing to support. But at the very least, Homer is sympathetic to Hera. Like, notice, Zeus gives us this whole speech about, you know, I'm going to, like, string you up and suspend anvils from your feet. And, you know, Hera gets a little... Um, 
Ursula who attacks. The oxide at Lady Hera stiffened at this, and she feathered her words home carefully. All right, I swear by earth and heaven above, and the subterranean water of Styx, the greatest and the most awesome oath a god can swear, by your sacred head and by our marriage couch, upon which I would never perjure myself, that it is not by my will that Poseidon is hurting the Trojans and helping the Greeks. He's acting of his own free will, out of pity for the beating the Greeks are taking by their ships. Notice she comes right up to the line of lying here. Like, Poseidon was the one who dispatched Hera to try and get Zeus out of the picture, and Hera was more than happy to comply here. But Hera is specifically swearing, and making a very sacred swear, by, by the way, like, if you swear by the river Styx as a god, if you violate that trust, you, like, have to spend an entire year in sleeping or, you know, totally incapacitated. So Hera is playing fast and loose there. But what she stresses is, it's not my fault that Poseidon is doing this. He's doing it of his own free will. And that's true. Poseidon got Hera to do this, not the other way around. Um, so she manages to sort of, like, extricate herself from the situation here. But notice that she's not being a good person. Like, even a little while later, once Hera has, in fact, gone back to Olympus and she's, like, rousing Iris and Apollo so they'll, you know, do Zeus's bidding as Zeus is requested, she has this speech around line 95 that says, Don't get me started, Themis. You know yourself what a bully he, meaning Zeus, is and how stubborn. No, let's get on with the feast and you will hear, along with the others, what Zeus means to do. It's not very pretty, and I rather doubt that anyone, mortal or god, will be pleased or if anyone will still have an appetite left. Notice Homer, through Hera, is communicating Hera's perspective here. Namely that Zeus is a bully and a jerk, that he is absolutely just thuggishly threatening her and getting his own will done, and literally everybody in Olympus is mad about it. Like, for the rest of this chapter, there's going to be a lot of Zeus resentment. Like, Poseidon gets literally told to step down, and for a moment, he's not even willing to. Like, he's going to fight Zeus until Iris is like, are you sure you want to do this? And Poseidon's like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. I guess I will. And Zeus even has a moment where he says that it's too bad that Poseidon doesn't fight him. That fight would have been legend, even if it was better that both of them yield. That's around line 230, or 228. Um, what I want to stress is Zeus and Hera are both terrible people. And they're kind of way above human moral judgment here. Like, this is actually an important factor of Greek culture, something that comes up a lot when you read Greek mythology, when you read Greek philosophy, when you encounter sort of Greek culture as, as a whole. They all notice that Homer's gods are kind of the worst a lot of the time. You know, Zeus is not being held up as a role model here. Zeus is being held up as an example of what men are like. And Homer is not really weighing in one way or the other about whether this is good or bad. And if he is, he's coming down pretty hard on the side of this is bad. This is a pompous, overbearing, power-hungry monster executing his will and damn the consequences. Who cares who gets in his way? He's going around threatening his own brother, his own wife, his own children in some cases, even the ones who he professes to love, like Athena. Zeus is not a good person. And as much as, again, 
spousal abuse is a reality of the Greek world for sure. You'll notice that most of the people being heroes in this text don't do stuff like that. Hector and Andromache have a positive relationship. They would never think of beating one another. Even Achilles and Briseis seem to have a deeper connection than would normally be assumed between a conquered and, like, slave concubine and the dude who conquered her. The Greek world is complicated. And as much as it is built on a sort of patriarchal system, a patriarchal system that Homer is more than willing to depict and critique without any shame or embarrassment about the situation, it's not necessarily true that the Greeks are just one-note monsters when it comes to men and women hanging out together. Some men are bad, and some women are bad, and some men are good, and some women are good, and some men are complicated, and some women are complicated. And the gods especially have a lot going on. Like, it's really hard to say that Zeus, that Zeus is completely unjustified for stringing Hera up with anvils when you remember that the reason why he's stringing her up with anvils is because she is literally torturing his son, Heracles, because she's jealous of him and angry that Zeus has been sleeping with other people. Like, no one is blameless here. And as much as we might be tempted to say, you know, this is bad and this is a bad culture... This is true to some degree. The Greeks definitely were not nearly as egalitarian as some classic scholars seem to think, for sure. And the, even the idea of Greek democracy is very messed up and very problematic. But what Homer is doing here with his poem isn't part of that, necessarily. It is at least aspiring to an outsider's perspective, looking on the whole business objectively and telling it in a way that is realistic for the time. For us now, to say that this is bad is for us to sort of fail to acknowledge that this was also true, that this is the reality that women lived in. And Homer is willing to give women quite the opportunity to talk about their own situation. Hera gets to mouth off about Zeus after she leaves him. We get to see, you know, later in the Odyssey, we'll see even more women sort of talking about their ugly situation and the double standards that exist in the Greek universe. Homer is attentive to this. And that's part of why he survived for as long as he has. A lot of the biases that informed Greek culture, a lot of the sort of backwards logic and terrible morality that informs the Greek culture, isn't necessarily like part of Homer's DNA here. Rather, he's looking at that stuff fairly objectively, letting us make decisions. This book supports you saying, wow, the Greek culture is messed up. Homer is standing right beside you saying, yeah, really, isn't it? Like even the obvious targets here, like, so many Greek texts are more than happy to say Helen is the worst, Helen is totally to blame for the Trojan War, it is entirely Helen's fault, Helen, Helen, Helen. Notice that Homer isn't willing to go there. No, Helen is sympathetic in these texts. Helen is sad, pathetic. We sympathize with her. We worry about her. If anything, Paris is the asshole. And Homer does seem pretty quick to condemn him. So all that to say, yeah, spousal abuse is wrong, don't do spousal abuse. But it is a reality of the Greek world, and it is something that Homer 
is willing to talk about because this is important to understanding the relationship between Zeus and Hera, and between men and women generally. Anyway, let's not get too caught up in it now. Again, we will talk about it more when we get to the Odyssey and we are able to see more female characters in, in Homer's tradition. For now, let's move ahead with the plot. So Zeus dispatches Hera, he gets Iris, and he gets Apollo. He sends Iris to Poseidon to tell him to stand down. Poseidon is initially kind of grumpy about this, but ultimately does comply. Apollo, on the other hand, gets different orders. He is given the Aegis, the big shield of Zeus, that... that powerful weapon that ultimately like turns the tide of battle whenever it's carried, and Apollo was dispatched to Hector. Now remember, Ajax kind of beat the crap out of Hector last time. Like He hit him with this giant rock and like clipped Hector's shield and knocked him out for a little while. Apollo shows up to Hector, and Hector is like flat on his back, and Apollo gives him strength, tells him that he is going to be behind him, and uh, Basically, Apollo heals him on the spot. Like, Hector literally gets up, and some of the Trojan soldiers, or rather, some of the Greek soldiers say, literally, line 291, Is this a miracle my Ninus are seeing? Hector has risen from the dead. Like, this is terrifying to the Greeks. They thought they were done with Hector once and for all. They thought Ajax had finally finished him off, despite the two of them kind of, like, taking pot shots at each other for, like, 150 pages at this point. But now Hector is back again, and with Apollo behind him. So the Greeks once again fall back. They kind of have to. They see Hector and they're terrified. On the one hand because it's Hector, and Hector's been messing him up for quite a while now. On the other hand because it's like zombie Hector. Like, what is even going on here? The gods are clearly on the side of the Trojans. We have to give ground. And then when Apollo starts charging forward, carrying the Aegis, the Greeks, like, legit retreat. At this point, they've moved beyond the walls. They're sort of charging forward, trying to push the Trojans back. Now the Trojans march forward again. And soon they're behind the walls, and it is not very long until they're actually coming up on the, on the ships again. So... At this point, Patroclus takes off. Like, he's been hanging out with Eurypylus for a while, and we get this brief little sort of discussion of him, you know, leaving Eurypylus alone because he hears all the chaos of battle. He has to return to Achilles. We, he has been told by Nestor, as we saw, that, you know, he has to, like, talk Achilles out of his sulking mood. Um, meanwhile, Hector and Ajax square off again. Uh, both of them sort of, like, end up on one of the ships and Hector is like calling for fire and he's like guys bring the firebrands we're gonna torch this sucker right here and now and Ajax is like desperately fighting off all the Trojans who are carrying the fire while also keeping himself safe from Hector like we even get a couple of more divine intervention moments like Tuker like Tuker from way back when he was the archer who was hanging out with Ajax, and like Ajax would put his giant shield forward, and Tuker would hide behind it. And then he'd like pop out and shoot somebody with his bow, and then like hide behind the shield again. Tuker shows up, and he's like, "All right, let's do this, Ajax. Let's team up and take him out." And like he shoots one Trojan guy, and then he's getting ready to shoot at Hector, and his bowstring breaks. Like we're literally told that it was Zeus who protected Hector robbed Tuker of his glory, breaking his twisted bowstring just as he was drawing it against Hector around line 479. And Tuker knows what's up. Tuker's like, yep, that's a god. Some god is cutting our battle plans pretty short, knocking the bow from my hands and snapping the new string I tied on this morning. So once again, 
we have divine intervention frustrating the Greek efforts. But at this point, it is too desperate for this. Like, they're literally standing on the ships, fighting the Trojans back from the ships, and the gods are still harassing the Greeks, still preventing them from being able to get anything done. And Hector figures this out as well. Like, on page 296, right around line 504, Hector has his own speech. Having seen that Tucker is you know, Tucker's bow has failed. He says, Trojan, Lycian, and Dardanian warriors, remember to be the warriors that you are in this fight for the ships. My eyes have seen the shafts of, the, of one of their best blasted by Zeus. It is easy to see whom Zeus protects, to whom he gives glory and grants the victory, and whom he lays low and will not protect. Even as now he lays low the Argives and gives his protection to us. So close your ranks and fight along the ships, and if any of you is hit and dies, then so be it. Death in defense of your homeland is no dishonor. Your wife is safe and your children's future. Your house and estate are inviolate if the Greeks sail off to their own native land. Like, notice, Hector's speech here really has two parts. First, he's like, guys, we've got Zeus on our side, obviously. Like, Hector has figured this out for a while. He's been charging under the protection of Zeus all the way back to, like, Book 8. Um, so we are well aware of the fact that Zeus is on Team Troy right now. Um, so Hector, you know, tells his men, it's okay. We can still charge forward. We are likely to win the day. The gods clearly favor us here. But what's more, while he recognizes that, you know, that doesn't mean that everyone's going to survive, he stresses that this is also a noble effort. If any of you is hit and dies, so be it. You're def dying in defense of your homeland. Your wife is safe, and so is your So are your children. So are your estates. This is what dying is for. This is why people die. This is what. This is the best you can hope to die for. So, they keep pushing forward, and we really get this sort of frenetic, stalemated battle right here on the ships. Every time Hector rallies his troops, Ajax rallies his as well. Every time the the like, heroes sort of face off, it almost always sort of is evenly matched and, you know, an even number of people die on both sides. It's desperate. Like, this is the climax of all of the combat scenes we've seen for literally 150 pages. Everything since Book 7 and, you know, the initial combat after uh, Hector and Paris reemerge from the city. This is what they've been fighting for. This is the big climactic moment. And Homer just sits here. Like, no possibility of things being swayed one way or the other. The, the Trojans are so close to destroying the ships, but every time they get close, Ajax pushes them back. The Greeks continue fighting. Like, when they do, in fact, burn the ships, this is a huge, hard-won battle. Like, it is a slog to read through a lot of Book 15 for that reason, but that makes the, the effort that's being expended here all the, all the more clear. Um, but notice, too, that this is connected, at least to Ajax, with this idea of pride and shame. Um, like, this is something that we haven't talked about a whole lot, and it's about to become really irrelevant over the next couple of sections. Um, but I want you to sort of, like, notice on uh, page 298, roughly around line 587, you know, as these two forces are sort of pushing back and forth, you know, Trojan soldiers falling, Greek soldiers falling, um, as Ajax and, and Hector are both trying to, like, rally their troops and keep up their spirits while pushing forward, 
Ajax, one of his speeches is, Be men, my friends, and show some shame. You should feel shame before each other in battle. More men with shame are saved than are slain. There's no glory or power in shameless flight. Notice this idea of shame. Pride and shame are really important ideas to the Greeks, and there's things that we have been running into a lot over the course of this text, and it's kind of my fault that we haven't really talked about them yet to, up to this point. So the two ideas of pride and shame are deeply connected in the Greek mind. And even Hector has spoken a lot about not wanting to feel shame before his fellow troops and attacking Paris because he apparently seems shameless. Likewise, Hector, you know, having honor, feeling pride because he stands at the front lines, because he fights with his men. Note that shame is a virtue here. Like, feeling shame, feeling full of shame, that's something you're supposed to feel, according to Ajax. Be men and show some shame. And on the one hand, I'm really tempted to sort of, like, turn this into a contemporary discussion of, like, how shame is apparently a bad word in our contemporary world, and, you know, maybe politicians could stand to, shame, to show more shame. I kind of don't want to do that, because that's, you know way too much, and we could go on forever talking about that. Um, but what I do want to emphasize is that pride and shame are the two sides of the same coin for the Greeks. Um, your pride is what causes you to feel shame, and your shame is what causes you to fight, because a person who is ashamed of running won't run. And a person who is proud of their position in the, the front lines will stay there and fight harder. Notice what he says, you should feel shame before each other in battle. There's no glory or power in shameless flight. If you are ashamed of running, then you won't run. And this is a really crucial idea for the Greeks, because even in Greek warfare, as we've seen like through so much of this text, a lot of this has to do with the sort of back and forth, pushing forward or pushing backward, and also avoiding retreating. Like, you'll notice, once Patroclus actually shows up to the fight, the Trojans immediately start retreating. Like, not just retreating, they are routed. Like, that's the term that Lombardo uses. They panic, and they run away as quick as they possibly can. And this is a death sentence in Greek combat. Like, in Greek combat, you line up with all of your soldiers... All of you with your shields and your armor and your spears, and you stand side to side in these lines. And the idea being that while you are in these lines, you are protecting everyone behind you, including the swag that you have, including your commanders who are giving you orders, including any really valuable weapons that you might be hanging on to, like siege weapons, if you know you have such things in this particular case. Um, this is really important. So if the line breaks, usually because somebody turned and ran, the rest of the whole strategy falls apart almost immediately. When one guy turns and runs from the front line, he, the people to either side of him will be, one, no longer protected by his shield and by his presence in the line, and two, they will also be demoralized. They will also be more inclined to run away, at which point one of them likely will, and then the guy next to him will, and so on and so forth until the whole line is broken up. 
But when you are running away, you're actually more vulnerable in Greek warfare. Because as long as you've got your shield facing forward, you have a really good chance of stopping a spear or stopping an arrow or deflecting somebody's weapon. But if you've got your back to them, then they can just pick you off. And there's nothing stopping them. They'll just chase you with their spears and fling them into your backs. And we see this multiple times over the course of the Iliad. So when Ajax says, feel shame, and shameless flight has no power or glory in it, he's not just sort of making a, like, Greek moral pronouncement here. This is really practical. If you feel shame, you won't run away. Your fear will be counteracted by your shame. And as a consequence, you'll stay in the line, and you will fight to the death, and you will protect your friends, and the line won't break, and no unnecessary casualties will occur. Everyone wins, in short. Now, there is another side to this, namely hubris, i.e. having too much pride, getting reckless. But we'll talk about that when we get to Patroclus. For now, we are still hanging out with Ajax and Hector on the ships. Hector is still trying to light this candle, and the gods are all waiting for him to succeed. Note line 621 here. It was then that the Trojans, like lions who have tasted raw meat, charged the ships and completed this part of Zeus's design. He steadily turned up the Trojans' intensity and softened the Greeks' resolve to win. Hector would win all the glory now. Priam's son would burn the beaked ships with fire from heaven and so fulfill the last syllable of Thetis' prayer. It was for this that Zeus waited, the glare from a burning ship. From then on, he would will the Trojans back from the ships and shift glory to the Greeks. With this intent, he roused Hector against the hollow ships, and Hector needed no urging. Hector raged like the war god, the spear-wielder, fire that consumes a wooded mountainside, foam flecking his mouth, eyes burning under fierce brows and a helmet encasing his face, a sinister glitter as Hector fought, as Zeus himself shed a cone of light from the aether around this solitary warrior, but only for this brief moment. Pallas Athena was hastening his doom under Achilles' hands. Notice that that's the mark here. Zeus is waiting for the ships to start to burn. That's where everything is going to get flipped around. That is where the entire trajectory of this story is going to change. That's the big signal here. And notice that as much as Hector is absolutely right, Zeus is on his side, he is under Zeus's protection, you know, he can charge forward safely because he knows that the gods are with him. He's also wrong. He's right that they're with him, he's right that they're empowering him, he's right that he's protected, but he's only protected to a point, and this is that point. Once Hector lights that ship on fire, all hell is going to break loose for the Trojans, because Zeus is only supporting them to support Thetis' own request. This is a feint. This is a lie. And it kind of sucks for Hector in that respect. Just as, you know, we have frequently seen Menelaus raging at Zeus because, you know, Zeus won't fulfill his retribution, you get the same sense that Hector, too, is operating under this false assumption. Zeus isn't protecting him because he likes Hector. Zeus is protecting Hector because Zeus's will is going to be done. Because fate is written already, and this is what it looks like. So in a moment, like... 
a little ways into book 16, this actually does happen. Like, during the conversation between Patroclus and Achilles, we get this little interjection here um, around line 118 or so, where Homer literally says, Tell me now, muses who dwell in Olympus, how fire first fell on the Achaean ships. It was Hector who forced his way to Ajax's side, and with his heavy sword lopped through the ashwood shaft of his spear at the socket's base, sending the bronze point clanging onto the ground far behind him and leaving in Ajax's hands a blunted stick. Ajax knew that this was the work of the gods, and Zeus had canceled Ajax's battle plans and planned instead a Trojan victory. No one could blame him for getting out of range, and when he did, the Trojans threw their firebrands onto the ship, and she went up in flames. Ajax has to retreat. Um, like, even in the stanza before that, we get this great line about how Zeus saw to it that everything the Trojans threw at Ajax hit him, and his helmet tickered and rang from all the metal points its bronze deflected from his temples and cheeks. Like, I just love the imagery here. Like, here's Ajax, the last standing hero in the Greek lines. Like, everyone else has been taken down. He's single-handedly trying to keep the Trojans back from this ship, and he's just, like, taking arrows and rocks and spears and all just, like, banging against him all the time. He's like desperately trying to like stay upright during this whole thing. And then finally Hector comes up, chops his spear in two, and Ajax is like, well, fuck it. I'm out. Like, what am I supposed to do at this point? They literally have surrounded me on all sides. I'm totally outnumbered. They just took out my weapon. Like, what could I possibly do? So Ajax backs off, and the Trojans light the ships on fire, and Achilles sees this and gives Patroclus permission to go ahead. But at that point, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Because we got to talk about Achilles and Patroclus. So we know how this is going to pan out. We know this because, again, everybody knows the Iliad. All the audience for Homer would definitely know this story and know this beat especially. But also because Nestor li literally gave the Patroclus the idea back in, like, uh, Book 12, if I'm not mistaken. Um, this is not a surprise. So Patroclus comes up to Achilles, and notice Patroclus is upset. Like, really upset. While they fought for the ship, Patroclus came to Achilles and stood by him, weeping, his face like a sheet of rock where the goat trails end and dark spring water washes down the stone. Achilles pitied him and spoke these feathered words. What are all these tears about, Patroclus? You're like a little girl, pestering her mother to pick her up, pulling at her hem as she tries to hurry off and looking up at her with tears in her eyes until she gets her way. That's just what you look like, you know. You have something to tell the Myrmidons, or myself, bad news from back home? Like, notice that Achilles assumes this is unrelated to the war. Like, how, why would you be crying over the Greeks? Like, he even has a line where he says, or are you brokenhearted because some Greeks are being beaten dead beside our ships? They had it coming. Like, Greek is, or Achilles is still in totally bitter, angry, raging mindset here. And, like, when Patroclus comes up to him weeping, he just assumes it's not the Greeks, because, you know, screw those guys. They're the worst. They denied me honor. They took away Briseis. But Patroclus responds, Achilles, great as you are, don't be vengeful. They are dying out there, all of our best, or who used to be our best. They've all been hit and are lying wounded in camp. Diomedes is out, and Odysseus, a good man with a spear. Even Agamemnon has taken a hit. Eurypolis, too, an arrow in his thigh. The medics are working on them right now, stitching up their wounds. But you are incurable, Achilles. God forbid I ever feel the spite you nurse in your heart. You and your damned honor. What good will it do future generations if you let us go down to this defeat in cold blood? 
Peleus was never your father, or Thetis your mother. No, the gray sea spat you out onto crags in the surf with an icy scab for a soul. And we're told a little further down, that was how Patroclus, like a child begging for a toy, begged for death. Patroclus is legitimately upset. Patroclus is moved by the plight of the Greeks. Patroclus sees that their troops are hard-pressed. He's seen all of the wounded coming into the, into the uh, encampment. He's been helping Eurypylus himself. And Achilles still refuses to recognize the harm that his actions have done to all of these people. His friends, his comrades, his allies. You know, never mind Agamemnon. He's hurting Odysseus, and Diomedes, and Eurypylus, and for that matter, Ajax standing up there desperately trying to hold down the fort all by himself. This is all his fault. So Patroclus calls him out on it. God forbid I ever feel the spite you nurse in your heart. The gray sea spat you out on the crags in the surf with an icy scab for a soul. Finally, we get the idea. Like, Achilles finally says, it's on your shoulders now. Wear my armor and lead our Myrmidons into battle. Like, Achilles gives Patroclus permission. Now, I should notice, he mentions, I did say I would not relent from my anger until the noise of battle lapped at my own ship's hulls. I'm not sure that's true. Like, we've heard a lot of promises and a lot of, like noise from Achilles about not getting back into the fight, even to the point that, you know, way back in Book 9, we were talking about how he was planning to just, like, pick up and leave and just abandon the Greeks altogether. If there was a specific ultimatum, and this was the specific ultimatum, I don't remember where it is. By all means, if you know where it is, send me an email, and I'll, like, check it out and, you know, see if you're right. But notice that this is twice now that this is the mark here, except that it's not the mark. When Zeus talks about, or when we get that description about how Zeus is waiting for the ships to be set on fire for fate to turn around, notice that Achilles is making it even more specific. I would not relent from my anger until the noise of battle lapped at my own ship's hulls. Like, Achilles has gone so far at this point that he's like, I don't even care about the other Greek ships. Like, as long as my ships are okay, screw the rest of them. So he is just totally far gone in his rage here. Um, but at any rate, like, whether this was the ultimatum or not, whether he's just, like, adding this to the ultimatum, whether Achilles is just getting more and more bitter, more and more anger as the text goes on, at any rate, once those ships start burning, things do turn around. Patroclus begs for death, and Achilles is more than happy to comply. By all means... Go take my armor, lead the Myrmidons into battle, act like you're me, that will inspire them, that will change the tide. But notice that Patroclus is also given some specific instructions here. Around line 84, Achilles specifies, Hit them hard, Patroclus, before they burn the ships and leave us stranded here. But before you go, listen carefully to every word I say. Win me my honor, my glory and my honor from all the Greeks, and as their restitution, the girl Briseis and many other ships. So he's like, go, fight, restore my honor, make sure that, you know, Agamemnon recognizes how necessary I am to the point that he gives me back Briseis and all the swag that he stole from me. But, once you've driven the Trojans from the ships, you come back. No matter how much Hera's thundering husband lets you win, any success you have against the Trojans will be at the expense of my honor. 
And if you get so carried away with killing the Trojans that you press on to Troy, one of the immortals may intervene. Apollo, for one, loves them dearly. Notice that Achilles doesn't want Patroclus to go too far for two reasons. First, if Patroclus gets a lot of kills, it's going to leave less people for Achilles, and Achilles doesn't want Patroclus stealing all his honor because he's a giant asshole. But second, he's also worried about Patroclus. If he gets too close to the walls, some god's going to show up and beat the crap out of him. P.S. That's totally what happens. But notice, too, that he concludes his speech with an especially grim pronouncement here. Around line 102, he says, O Patroclus, I wish to father Zeus into Athena and Apollo, that all of them, Greek and Trojans alike, every last man on Troy's dusty plain were dead. And only you and I were left to rip Ilion down, stone by sacred stone. Alright, let's talk about gay sex. So... A lot of ink has been spilled on the subject of whether or not Achilles and Patroclus are gay lovers. Like, a lot. A lot now in the 20th century, now that, you know, there is a much more sort of robust uh, movement surrounding, like, homosexuality and sort of looking to the Greeks as a model for how homosexual love can exist and be approved in society. But also, honestly, like, the Greeks were really interested in this as well. I have read several Greek treatises, and Roman treatises for that matter, talking about the relationship between Patroclus and Achilles, and virtually all of them assume that this is a sexual relationship. This is fairly typical in Greek culture, but it is not entirely clear that it is totally typical in Homer's version of Greek culture. Like, when we talk about Greek culture, again, as we specified earlier on this semester, like in our introductory discussion, I emphasized we've got a weird time distortion here. Because we are reading, you know, Homer from the perspective not of ourselves, but from, like, the ancient Greeks of 400 BCE, who are themselves reading Homer as a 400-year-old text, who is, and Homer himself is writing about a world that is, for him, 400 years old. Um, again, classical Greece, 400-ish BCE, Homer's Greece, 800-ish BCE, the Trojan War, if it happened, 1200-ish BCE. So it's not clear whether homosexual sex between soldiers was actually all that accepted or typical, definitely of the Trojan War. Like, again, we have no records indicating that that's the case from 1200 BCE. Probably not much indication from Homer, because Homer never makes it explicit here, and only kind of refers to it in a secondary way here, so it's possible, it's definitely a logical interpretation, but also it might not be. Um, but mostly, we also are confused by the matter that homosexual sex in 400 BCE is being read into the text in Homer's day, and that's just further confusing the matter. See, in 400 BCE, in classical Greece, the Greece of Plato and of Aristotle, the Greece of, you know, Euripides and Sophocles and Aeschylus, um, the Greece of Pericles, for that matter, homosexual sex is usually practiced in a very specific way. Namely, older dudes have sex with younger dudes. Like, young men. Like, boys probably between the age of, say, 16 and 20. Like, even in the symposium, there are some pretty fair descriptions of, like, how you shouldn't sleep with boys who can't grow a mustache. Not because it's wrong, 
like on some deep metaphysical level, like it's unnatural, but because they're not grown-ups and don't know what they want yet, and therefore will just break your heart. Um, yes, we're working with a completely different paradigm here. Um, this is what's known in academic circles and for the Greeks as well as pederasty, um, i.e. older men sleeping with younger boys. And as a consequence, most of the texts that deal with you know, are Achilles and Patroclus gay lovers are trying to frame them in that relationship. Older men sleeping with younger boy. Um, in this relationship, you anticipate that the older man is going to be, you know, not as attractive, probably wealthier, probably giving his young ward lots of gifts, probably helping him in his studies and helping him in society. But, you know, the young man is not attracted to the old man. He's just basically a fuckboy who gets a lot of swag on the side. Um, and this doesn't fit for Patroclus and Achilles. Like, you'll notice Patroclus is a little older, older than Achilles, but it is very much emphasized that Achilles is definitely a lot richer and more powerful. Um, Achilles is stronger, like, as a warrior. His father is Peleus, who is the king in his own land, where Patroclus was taken in by Peleus. So... There are quite a few Greek scholars, like writers in ancient Greek, including Plato himself in the Symposium, who kind of don't know what to make of this relationship. Like, I've seen scholars argue both ways, like ancient scholars, saying that actually Patroclus was Achilles' fuckboy because Achilles is, you know, big and strong and powerful and sexy, and obviously would take the sort of pitcher route in the pitcher-catcher relationship, which is so fundamental to the pederastic relationship. While other Greeks and Roman scholars are like, well, no, obviously, since Patroclus is older, Achilles must be the fuckboy to Patroclus, even though he's stronger, because he's the beautiful one, and Patroclus is the older, wiser one. It's a mess, in short. And if anything, the really obvious sort of outcome of all this is that they are reading in their own perspectives, their own assumptions about homosexual sex and pederastic relationships into Homer, where it doesn't belong. Homer is, if in fact we are to understand Achilles and Patroclus as being lovers, they are way more equal, way closer to the modern understanding of homosexual sex and love than the Greek understanding of sex and love in like the 5th and 4th centuries BCE. Like, this is just enormously confusing and complicated, I realize, and also rather crass. Um, but it is worth mentioning, because a lot of people do sort of come away from this tax, and they do assume this sort of relationship, and I really don't know what to make of it. Like, I have yet to read any serious treatises about, like, what, let's apply the, you know, homosexual, or knowledge of hom Greek homosexuality as we have it to the Iliad and see what comes of it, largely because, again, this isn't necessarily my wheelhouse, this isn't, like, my area of expertise, but everything that I've read is that this is very much an open question at this point. Not just were, you know, who was the fuckboy and who was the, like, lover in the Greek sense, who was Erastes and who was a Romanos here, but also, like, were they even lovers? Because it's not terribly explicit in Homer. Like, we all sort of assume that this is the case, and the Greeks definitely assumed that this was the case, and we should probably follow the Greeks in assuming that this was the case. 
but we will have to draw lines when we realize that the Greeks really are having a lot of trouble applying their notions of homosexuality to what Homer is writing about here. Now, as for why is it okay for Greek soldiers to have sex with each other, that's probably a way bigger question and a way more complicated one and one that I am even less equipped to answer. This was normal. And everything that we're talking about with pride and shame goes double for lovers on the Greek lines. Um, notice that, like, Patroclus and Achilles, with their bond here, would be especially ashamed to retreat in front of the other person. Like, this is something that the symposium talks about extensively in Phaedrus's speech. Like, he emphasizes, you know, when lovers go into battle together, they are least likely to retreat because they don't want to be ashamed in front of the person they care about. So, this is actually considered good in Greek martial practices. Like, it's a good thing for troops to start hooking up with each other, because then they will actually be better fighters. Yeah, tell that to your, you know, tough, like, super masculine friends at Thanksgiving this year. Like, yes, for the Greeks, homosexuality was an expression of masculinity, was in fact the defining expression of masculinity, considered the highest form of masculinity, and considered to make you better soldiers, better troops, and better people generally. Yep, have fun with that. Um, suffice it to say that their relationship, whether sexual or not, is really close. Like, not just do we have scenes where, like, Patroclus is coming up to Achilles weeping, or Achilles is weeping because Patroclus is deaf, like, there's a lot of crying going on here. Believe it or not, that's pretty typical of the Greeks across the board. They were emotional folks, and they did not mind displaying that emotion. Um, like, none of that stoic nonsense. That's not going to come around for hundreds of years, and it's arguably all Plato's fault. This is a culture that is very much wearing its emotions and feelings on its sleeves, so it is not unusual for men to cuddle, even if they're not having sex, for men to, like, weep openly in front of each other, whether they're having sex or not. Like, that's just how things roll with the Greeks. They are, you know, very passionate people um, in a variety of ways. So, what we should note, though, is that Again, whether or not this is sexual, there is a deep connection here. If Achilles and Patroclus are fuckboys, this totally makes sense that you know Achilles would be so distraught by Patroclus' death. But this would also make sense if Achilles is just distraught because his closest friend is dead. Like, everything that we've seen so far has indicated that they have a very close relationship. Achilles trusts Patroclus to do a lot of his dirty work to go and talk to Nestor about, you know, who it is who's being carried in from the front lines, to, you know, prepare stuff for Odysseus and Phoenix and his visitors when they come trying to entreat him and get, like, get him to rejoin the battle. Heck, he even entrusts Patroclus with getting Briseis for him when Agamemnon, like, sends his goons to take Briseis back in book one. Like, Patroclus basically functions as an extension of Achilles in a lot of this text. And we should also note that this is not the only relationship of this kind. Like, a couple times we've actually seen Sarpedon and Glaucus have a fairly similar relationship. Wouldn't be surprised if there's gay sex happening there. A couple of times we've seen, like, Hector get really upset when his, like, charioteer died or something. Totally possible there was a sexual relationship there. Keep in mind, because I suspect that this is getting more confusing without me talking about it, the Greeks don't have an understanding of homosexuality. That's not a thing for them. 
for the Greeks, people are not just straight or gay. That is very much a 20th century invention because in the 19th century, like, homosexuality was a term coined as a medical diagnosis because they were sick perverts who needed to be cured. Long story, it's a giant mess. Um, and as a consequence, in the 20th century, this term was reappropriated and sort of used as a defense for practicing gay sex. Namely, you can't blame me. I was born this way. I am gay. Like, my identity is tied to my sexuality. It is genetic or innate or however you want to explain it. I am not to blame for this as a choice. This is how I am constituted. Therefore, I have, like, this is just who I am. For the Greeks, that's not how they look at it. Everybody's bi in the Greek world. Like, that's just a fundamental assumption that virtually every Greek has, or at least every Greek man. Greek women are complicated, although I don't think that they're actually necessarily an exception. Just ask Sappho sometime. Um, the Greeks don't understand people in terms of straight or gay. They understand everybody is bisexual, everybody has sex with boys, everybody has sex with women. That's just being a person. Um, no further questions? Like, the Greeks wouldn't have a problem with Hector sleeping with his charioteer on the battlefield and sleeping with his wife at home. Like, no questions to be posed to Hector here. In the same way that nobody would ask questions about Agamemnon sleeping with concubines like Chryseis overseas while his wife Clytemnestra is explicitly forbidden never to entertain male guests because that would be disloyal of her. The Greek world offers a lot of sexual fulfillment to men in a wide variety of places. Like, I'm not even sure how upset they are about bestiality. Like, that's very unclear, and a lot of the myths actually focus pretty heavily on, like, men and women having sex with animals in various ways, either because Zeus is transformed into an animal specifically for the purpose, or because Aphrodite has cursed them in some way. Like, bestiality seems to be pretty well frowned upon, but it's not, like, explicitly forbidden in a way that we tend to get really upset and uh, angry about it now. The Greeks just are cool with sex. That's kind of what it comes down to. Like, to the point that the statues outside their houses have giant dongs on them. Like, you just kind of got to get over it. If you were listening to this lecture and cringing the entire while, I'm so sorry. But seriously, you're going to have to get over it. It's going to get worse before we're out of the woods here. Um, so yeah, very openly sexual culture. Very much aware of their own bodies. Very much in, like, in love with male beauty. All of this is true. Don't question it too much. It is totally not something that anyone would question that Achilles is sleeping with Briseis because, you know, he loves her and he's and she's his concubine with Patroclus because he loves him and they're best friends and also with his wife, who admittedly we haven't heard anything about, but I assure you, he does have a wife. He also has a kid, even though they've never come up in this text. Um... No Greek would have questioned this. This is all totally fine. Totally acceptable. No breaches of etiquette. No moral failings on Achilles' part. Nobody cares who you're sleeping with in the Greek world. Or if they do, it's for completely other reasons. Um, like in the 5th century, they have some really sketchy ideas about older men who are 
willingly being penetrated by younger men, like, that's messed up, and we will not stand for that nonsense. Unacceptable. Like, that Pausanias guy, man. Nope, nope, not cool. Feel free to ask me in class if you have more questions about this. I suspect we'll talk about it in some detail. Usually we end up on a long tangent, but since I am currently driving this car, we are going to get off of it now. Um, at any rate, at any rate, Patroclus does just as asked. He dresses up in Achilles' armor. We get the whole arming scene that we've seen several times before at this point, but noticeably we get this hint um, that Patroclus left behind the massive battle pike, Achilles' spear, because he can't carry it. It's too big for him. Um, which is a subtle hint to us, or maybe not so subtle hint, that Patroclus is kind of out of his depth here. He is not supposed to be wearing this armor. Like, Achilles is cool with it, and Patroclus is cool with it. Nobody's upset about it. But by wearing the armor, Patroclus is kind of making himself out to be greater and more powerful than he actually is. Patroclus isn't Achilles. He can't carry Achilles' spear. He's just wearing Achilles' armor, supposedly to, you know, break up the fighting a little bit, reinvigorate the Greeks, and then hopefully come back unharmed. But of course, that's not how things go. Um, so right after Patroclus leaves, Achilles goes back to his tent, and he opens up his fancy special box, and he's got this super special chalice, and he pours out a libation to Zeus again, and he has a prayer that goes along with it. Another in a long line of prayers that we have been privy to here in this text. Lord Zeus, he says at line 242, God of Dodona, Pelasgian god who dwells afar in the snows of Dodona with your barefoot priests who sleep on the ground around your sacred oak, as you have heard my prayer before and did honor me and smite the Achaeans, so now too fulfill my prayer. As I wait in the muster of the ships and send my Patroclus into battle with my men, send forth glory with him. Make bold the heart in his breast so that Hector will see that my comrade knows how to fight and win without me. And when he has driven the noise of battle away from our ships, may he come back to me unharmed with all his weapons and men. And notice, Zeus in his wisdom heard Achilles' prayer and granted half of it. Yes, Patroclus would drive the Trojans back from the ships, but he would not return from battle unharmed. Now again, we've seen a lot of prayers. We've seen a lot of prayers fulfilled. I think we are now at like two and a half, maybe three successfully granted prayers out of like seven or eight at this point, because we've got a lot of prayers that have ended, but Zeus refused to grant his prayer. Like, once again, the gods are pretty friggin' unpredictable here, and it's not quite clear how strong these prayers actually matter in the wake of fate and all of the other powers that are sort of at stake here. Um, at any rate, notice that all Patroclus has to do is friggin' show up and the tide of battle turns. So Patroclus leads the Myrmidons out, they swarm up to the Trojans, we get that great metaphor of like, like hornets flying out of a disturbed nest, the Myrmidons swarm up the ships, and immediately, immediately, the Trojans are out. They're like, fuck, Achilles is back, peace, we're done. They were all over the Trojans, we're told, on line 282, and the ship's hulls reverberated with the sounds of their battle cries. The Trojans, when they saw Patroclus gleaming in his armor, fell apart, convinced that Achilles had come at last. His wrath renounced and solidarity restored. Each of them looked for a way to save his skin. And Patroclus rips him a new one. 
like, Patroclus has his good day here, and it is a heck of a good day. Like, Diomedes rampaging through Aphrodite and Ares is definitely on par with Patroclus cutting his way through the Trojan ranks. Like, left and right, Tro Patroclus is going to kill dozens of Trojans and single-handedly define the course of this battle for the rest of this chapter. The Trojans frantically run away. Patroclus runs after them with the Myrmidons. They track people down and kill them. Like, we even get a pretty bold move on Patroclus's part where right around line 425, it says Patroclus let them go, but when he had cut off the foremost battalions, he hemmed them back toward the ships, blocking their frantic retreat toward the city, and in the space defined by the ships, the river and Troy's high wall, he made them pay in blood. Like, keep this in mind, as difficult as this is to imagine when it's just me and my voice and no chalkboard, Patroclus is chasing the Trojans away from the ships. The whole point of his move here was to get them away from the ships, and at this point he circles around their flight, cuts them off, and drives them back toward the ships so he can mess them up even more. Like, Patroclus is bold here. He is taking advantage of their fear, and it pays off for him. Like, at this point, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with what Patroclus is doing. We're told when he crosses the line. Homer is very explicit about it. But here, Patroclus is just merciless in his treatment of the Trojans. Like, they douse the ships, the fires are out, no harm, no foul, but he is going to take it out of their hides. And we finally get a major face-off here. Sarpedon... You know, A-list Trojan hero, friend of Glaucus, head of the uh, Lycian contingent of the Trojan allies, squares off against Patroclus. One-on-one, -on -one, mano -y mano why this sudden beast, burst of speed, Sarpedon asks, line 459. Slow down a little while I make the acquaintance of this nuisance of a Greek who seems by now to have hamstrung half the Trojan army. Now, we were told... Like, Sarpedon told us himself why he's out here fighting. And you very much get this sense that this is the fulfillment of that speech. Where Sarpedon was saying, you know, I have all of my riches, I have all of my power, I have all of my glory because I stand at the front lines and I do the fighting. You very much get the sense that Sarpedon is taking one for the team here. But Sarpedon also says, I wish we could be immortal. But given that we have to die, may as well die honorably and in battle. And notice that's exactly what happens to him here. But notice, too, this is kind of an important moment, not just for Sarpedon and for Patroclus, but for the gods as well. Zeus himself is watching this throwdown. And he says, line 471, Fate has it that Sarpedon, whom I love more than any man, is to be killed by Patroclus. Shall I take him out of battle while he still lives and set him down in the rich land of Lycia, or shall I let him die under Patroclus's hands? And Hera, his lady, her eyes soft and wide, Son of Cronus, what a thing to say! A mortal man whose fate has long been fixed and you want to save him from rattling death? Do it, but don't expect all of us to approve. Listen to me. If you send Sarpedon home alive, you will have to expect other gods to do the same and save their own sons, and there are many of them in this war around Priam's great city. Think of the resentment you will create. But if you love him, 
and are filled with grief, let him fall in battle at Patroclus's hands, and when his soul and life have left him, send sleep and death to bear him away to Lycia, where his people will give him burial with mound and stone, as befits the dead. Notice Zeus, who is in fact Sarpedon's dad, has a moment of regret here. He knows that it is Sarpedon's fate to die to Patroclus. This has been set in stone forever. Everybody knows this. Like, the Greeks would also probably have known this, even though Patroclus may in fact be a Homeric invention. Jury's still a little out on that, and Sarpedon may have been as well. Um, at any rate, Zeus gets cold feet. Maybe I'll take him back. I'm Zeus. I'm the head of the gods. I can totally rescue my own son. What are they going to do to me? But notice what Hera replies. If you do it, all the other gods are going to want to do the same thing. His fate was decreed. And Zeus apparently is powerful enough to overcome that fate. Can, in fact, change the trajectory of things. But if he does, he's breaking ranks with order itself here. Like, the universe will fly into chaos. All the gods will immediately start doing things for themselves. They won't care about Zeus's authority because Zeus has himself transgressed the bounds of his authority. What I'm stressing here is that Zeus is not in charge of this war. Fate is. And nowhere in this text is it more clear than right here. Right as Sarpedon is getting is squaring off with Patroclus, Sarpedon, who by the way is in all likelihood accepting his fate by squaring off with Patroclus, who recognizes his role in the universe, Zeus considers breaking with fate but Hera assures him that would be a bad call. And so he lets Sarpedon die. Now, there's a big fight over Sarpedon's body. We get, like, oh, this is like the best death in the whole text. Like, Patroclus stabs Sarpedon through the chest, and then he, like, sticks his foot on his chest and pulls out the spear and tears his lungs out with him. Like, ugh! This is just, you know, Homer at his absolute best when it comes to carnage and gore. Um, suffice it to say, they fight over Sarpedon, the Greeks do, in fact, retain Sarpedon's body. Patroclus strips the armor off of Sarpedon's body, but then Apollo, like, steals him away and whisks him off, and he's preserved because, you know, Zeus loves him and stuff. Um, so Sarpedon's body is, in fact, preserved despite the battle that is fought over it. And this is the point. This is the moment where Patroclus goes too far. Right around line 717... We have this passage. Patroclus called to his horses and charioteer and pressed on after the Trojans and Lycians, forgetting everything Achilles had said and mindless of the black fates gathering above. Even then, you might have escaped them, Patroclus, but Zeus's mind is stronger than men's, and Zeus now put fury in your heart. Once again, we've got a lot to unpack here. On The, the first thing that you should definitely notice is that this is the turning point for Patroclus. Like, Patroclus was totally within his rights to drive the Trojans away from the ships. Patroclus was apparently totally within his rights to cut the Trojan retreat off and, like, just kill a bunch of people. Patroclus was totally within his rights to face off with Sarpedon and definitely won the day on this one. And we should notice, for sure, this is the first time that an A-list Greek hero and an A-list Trojan hero have faced off and somebody's been killed over it. Like, we've had a lot of false starts here. 
Menelaus and Paris squared off, but Paris squirmed away at the last minute. Hector and Ajax have been fighting each other for literally hundreds of pages at this point, and neither of them can never manage to get one over on the other one. You know, Odysseus, Agamemnon, Diomedes, they've all been taken out, wounded, but they're all alive. Sarpedon doesn't go home alive. Sarpedon is the first major hero who has been a major player throughout this text to be dead. Like, even guys like Eurypylus and Idomeneus have managed to survive, despite being B- or C-list heroes here. Sarpedon's death represents a big change. We are not kidding around anymore. Yeah, we've had tons of heroes die, but those heroes were, like, jokes in comparison to what's going on now. Patroclus is empowered, and the Trojans are starting to take some real damage. But, Patroclus was instructed, once you have driven him off, come back. And Patroclus doesn't exactly make the choice, but pursues anyway. But notice the reasoning why. Even then you might have escaped them, but Zeus's mind is stronger than men's, and Zeus now put fury in your heart. Which means we're talking about rage again. Maybe not the exact same rage that Achilles is dealing with, like the terms are slightly different here, but certainly anger, certainly passion, certainly rage in the colloquial broad sense. Patroclus feels this passion, this anger, that overwhelms his good sense and causes him to forget that he had promised Achilles to come back. This rage overpowers him. But notice, too, this rage isn't his own. Zeus put it there. And as a consequence, rage seems to be a tool of fate here in this direct sort of connection. Patroclus is fated to die. And Patroclus wouldn't, given his right mind, allow himself to do that. But rage causes him to die. Rage drives him into his own death, causes him to forego his good reason, his good sense, to forego Achilles' prayer and Achilles' uh, requests from him, and in fact destroy himself. But there's one other thing that I do definitely want to mention here, because it is especially obvious here, and we've seen it a couple of times, and I haven't weighed in on it, but it's kind of this really important characteristic in Homer's writing, and that is... Patroclus gets a really special honor here in the Iliad. Not just the fact that he gets to kill Sarpedon, although that's a pretty impressive honor all by itself. Not the fact that he gets to wear Achilles' armor. That actually comes with baggage. Homer refers to Patroclus in the second person here. Did you notice that? Several times in this passage and elsewhere, he refers to you, Patroclus. You, that's how you, Patroclus, like a begged for death. That's how you, Patroclus, you know, received fury into your heart. This is something that is common about the Iliad and the Odyssey. Homer addresses directly one of his own characters at a really significant point in both stories. For the Iliad, it's Patroclus. For the Odyssey, hopefully you'll see. Um, 
Now, I think that caught a slip-up this time around. I could be wrong about that, but I would have sworn that I saw Homer refer to Menelaus as you at one point, but it was only the one time. It might have been a translation thing. I don't know. Maybe it's a textual thing. Not sure. Patroclus, on the other hand, is well-documented. Multiple times over the course of chapter uh, 15 or 16 here, Patroclus is referred to in this second person. You, Patroclus. You, Patroclus. You, Patroclus. And we're not entirely sure what this means, either. Like, does that mean that Patroclus is the greatest hero in the text? Because he's certainly not the strongest. Like, Hector's going to kill him. Achilles is clearly stronger than Patroclus. Apollo tells him that directly to his face. But remember that Patroclus is also, in many ways, the most sympathetic. Patroclus is the one who weeps over his Greek allies being killed. Patroclus is the one who tends to Eurypolis while he is wounded. Like, as much as I have stressed, Hector is kind of the paragon hero, and especially in Book 6, because Hector knows what he's fighting for. Hector cares about his family and his son and his wife and his, you know, town, his friends, his fellow soldiers. He's fighting for them, and that's what makes him superior to Agamemnon and Achilles. Notice that where Hector sort of convinces himself to do this, Patroclus doesn't. Patroclus just feels for them. We never see Hector weep over his fallen comrades, or at least when we do, it's much more short-lived and it doesn't usually change the trajectory of the war all that much. Patroclus will literally sacrifice his life for the sympathy that he feels for his comrades. He appeals to Achilles because he has seen Eurypolis and Odysseus and, and uh, Diomedes carried off on stretchers. Patroclus also knows why he fights. But where Hector is strong enough to actually, like, do that, go out and fight and hold his own and kill a bunch of Greeks in the process, Patroclus typically doesn't. I mean, we do see Patroclus take on Sarpedon, and that's a pretty impressive feat. Like, again, he's the first guy to get an actual serious Greek or Trojan hero killed. But at the same time, we haven't been given any indication to believe that he can totally match strength with Hector or with Ajax, or even with Odysseus, who we've kind of all acknowledged is maybe not the best fighter, although he's a great strategist. Patroclus has limits, and this is where he transgresses those limits. See, we have Patroclus sort of forgetting everything that Achilles said. Achilles warning him, you know, it is not your job to take on Troy. Do not follow up to the walls or the gods will take you out. Remember to save some of the killing for me because I deserve more honor because I am the stronger warrior. That's not just Achilles being an asshole. That's a statement of fact. But notice Patroclus ignores all of that. And we in fact see him push the Trojans all the way back to the walls of Troy itself. I remember back in Book 8 where we were like, you know, we go from Diomedes basically saying that, you know, we don't need Trojan sympathy, we can totally take them, and then by the end of Chapter 8, like, the Greeks have been laid low and the, the Trojans are encamped right outside of the, the ships. Like, we see the entire reversal of that here in Book 16. Patroclus drives the Trojans all the way from the ships to the gates of Troy, and he even mounts the parapet. This is line 3, or 734 or so. Three times Patroclus reached the parapet, and three times Apollo's fingers flicked against the human's shield and pushed him off. 
But when he came back a fourth time, like a spirit from beyond, Apollo's voice split the daylight in two. Get back, Patroclus, back where you belong. Troy is fated to fall, but not to you, nor even to Achilles, a better man by far. You should definitely be thinking of Diomedes right now. Like the structure of this passage, the framing of this passage, even the fact that it's Apollo flicking his shield is totally reminiscent of Diomedes trying to take out Aeneas and take his armor, and Apollo rebuffing him with that classy line, you know, you are to the gods as humans, or the gods are to you what humans are to crawling bugs. Apollo is very much emphasizing here, I'm a god, you are just a mortal, know your place. And it's interesting that it's Apollo, like we talked about that a little bit when it was Diomedes, but it is even more obvious now because Apollo has very much been this sort of impersonal, like, t relatively objective representative of the Greek pantheon, unlike Zeus, unlike Athena, unlike all of the gods and goddesses who have their various grudges here. Apollo seems to be standing in for fate here. But just as he emphasize to Diomedes, you know, you are to the gods as, like, bugs are to humans, here we get, get back Patroclus to where you belong. Troy is fated to fall, but not to you, nor even to Achilles, a better man by far. Know your place. And that's the other side of that pride and shame discussion, hubris. Hubris is this typically Greek word. I think I talked about it a little bit with Diomedes, but now I'm forgetting because I've taught this sort of thing so much. Hubris is the idea that you are getting out of your place, standing up against the gods, standing out of your lane, in short. Like, the image is the tree that stands tallest on a mountain is the one that is quickest struck by lightning. Patroclus has pushed too far. Patroclus has great strength, but not strength enough to take over Troy. Achilles can't even do that, and Achilles is much better than Patroclus is. So Patroclus is rebuffed. Apollo tells him, not for you, dude. And Patroclus is wrong to step out of his lane in this way. This is why he will die. And indeed, notice we get another repetition of this framework. On line 823, we get three times Patroclus charged into the Trojan ranks with the raw power of Ares, yelling coldly, and on each charge he killed nine men. But when you made your fourth demonic charge, then did you feel it, Patroclus? Out of the mist, your death coming to meet you. Once again, we get this charging forward three times and getting rebuffed three times. Not being rebuffed by Apollo this time, but just because he's charging and eventually gets pushed back by the sheer number of people. You might wonder, well, then where is Apollo? Well, he's right behind you. It was Apollo, whom you did not see in the thick of battle, standing behind you, and the flat of his hand found the space between your shoulder blades. The sky's blue disc went spinning in your eyes as Achilles' helmet rang beneath the horse's hooves and rolled in the dust. No, that couldn't be right. Those handsome horsehair plumes grimed with blood. The gods would never let that happen to the helmet that had protected the head and graceful brow of divine Achilles, but the gods did let it happen. And Zeus would now give the helmet to Hector, whose own death was not far off. Notice Apollo personally 
slaps the shit out of Patroclus. Like, hits him on the back, and his armor just, like, falls off. And now Patroclus is standing there in the middle of this battlefield, naked. Like, maybe not naked, naked, probably just wearing a shirt or something. Either way, not armed, not protected, stunned, unable to react. And we even get poor Euphorbus, this random Trojan kid who's, like, 18 and still wet behind the ears, finally, like, going up to Patroclus and, like, stabbing him with a spear, and then he's like, oh, shit, I didn't, I'm, I'm so sorry, and he runs away. And at this point, Hector shows up, and Hector's like, oh, well, Patroclus is just standing there like an idiot. He's been stabbed by, you know, that random kid with the spear. I guess I'll kill him, and he does. He rams the spear through. And notice Patroclus, he can't respond. He is stunned. He is paralyzed. Apollo takes him out of the fight. This is fate. Those three charges with no Apollo to flick him back was kind of a fate here. We are meant to think of Apollo pushing him back, because it is going to be Apollo that ultimately takes him out. But this time, Apollo's not messing around. Not just flicking his shield back. No, this time, Apollo basically sets him up to die. And the weird thing is that Hector gloats. Like, there's Patroclus just standing there, completely oblivious to what's going on, stabbed by some other random dude, and Hector, like, stabs him again and starts gloating. So, Patroclus, you thought you could ransack my city and ship our women back to Greece to be your slaves? You little fool. They're defended by me, by Hector, by my horses and my spear. I am the one, Troy's best, who keeps their doom at bay. But you, Patroclus, the vultures will eat you on this very spot. Your marvelous Achilles has done you no good at all. I can just see it. Him sitting in his tent and telling you as you left, don't bother coming back to the ships, Patroclus, until you have ripped Hector's heart out of his bloody shirt. That's what he said, isn't it? And you were stupid enough to listen. Hector is also guilty of hubris here. Hector didn't really do much in the whole killing Patroclus business. He did not overcome his fearsome enemy. He stabbed a dude while he was lying naked and dazed in the middle of the battlefield. This is no time for all this crowing. And notice that even Hector gets the facts wrong. He assumes that Achilles dispatched Patroclus to kill Hector, and he gloats over Achilles' mistake here, when in fact Achilles told Patroclus not to tangle with Hector. Don't push him too far. Don't go all the way to the walls. And Patroclus knows this. And so, in his last words, he gives us this little speech to give us context. Brag while you can, Hector, he says. Zeus and Apollo have given you an easy victory this time. If they hadn't knocked off my armor, I could have made mincemeat of twenty like you. It was fate, and Leto's son who killed me. Of men, Euphorbus. You came in third, at best. I have no idea if Patroclus could actually have taken Hector. Obviously, we never get a chance to really see that. Like, they do square off at one point, but it's very inconclusive, and they barely even get shots off at each other. Patroclus may be overreaching here when he says that he could make mincemeat out of twenty like you. But Patroclus is totally right to say that it was fate first, Apollo second, Euphorbus if we're going to have to include men, and Hector at best third. Hector had very little to contribute to the death of Patroclus. This was fate. It was always fate. It was fate from the moment that Nestor told 
Patroclus that, you know, maybe he should go into battle in Achilles' armor. It was fate when Patroclus begged like a child begging for a toy. That's how he begged for death. It was fate when Patroclus ultimately killed Sarpedon and could have turned around and called it a day, but didn't because rage had already overtaken him. At no point did Patroclus have a choice here. Fate was driving him along the whole time. And Hector... Hector was just the right guy at the right time. Really, he didn't do much at all. Fate has been controlling both of them, from the beginning of this text to the end. And we've seen it in Hector's case. Hector himself has not been able to really square off against any of the Greek heroes without Zeus totally backing him up, zapping Diomedes out of the way, or preventing Tuker's bow from firing, or preventing Ajax from being able to get one over on Hector. Like, all of these heroes have been cleared out of the way by the gods. And in a sense, we could argue none of these heroes have ever really matched wits. An honor may be a bullshit concept from Homer's perspective. Because every time you think you're dealing with honor here, really, it's not personal prowess, but the gods and accidents and fate that is causing this battle to go the way that it does. The heroes have very little say in their own lives, no matter how powerful they are. And so... Patroclus adds, one more thing for you to think over. You're not going to live long. I see death standing at your shoulder and you going down under the hands of Peleus's perfect son. And Hector replies, although at that point Patroclus is already dead, why prophesy my death, Patroclus? Who knows? Achilles, son of Thetis, may go down first under my spear. Maybe. But it won't. Hector's doom is also written here. We know how this is going to go. The gods literally told us. Back in Book 15, we get this literal discussion after Hera has left Zeus, where Zeus explains the entire plan here, start to finish, like, what would, exactly what is going to happen and how it is going to go down. Way back in line, this is 58 of Book 15, and Phoebus Apollo, or tell Lord Poseidon to desist from the war, and Phoebus Apollo to rouse Hector to fight, breathe strength into him again, so that he may forget the pain that now distresses him, and drive the Achaeans back once more in flight. So shall they flee in panic and fall dead among the hollow ships of Peleus' son Achilles, who will send forth his comrade Patroclus, whom illustrious Hector will kill, kill with his spear before Ilion, after Patroclus himself has killed many a youth among them, Sarpedon, my son. In wrath for Patroclus, Achilles will kill Hector. From that time on, I shall cause the Trojans to be driven back from the ships until the Greeks capture steep Ilion through Athena's council. This was all part of the plan. All the way back in Book 1, at the very beginning of this poem, Achilles' rage, so Zeus's will was done. They are all trapped here. And in some sense, what is honor and glory at that point? What does choice even matter to the Greeks? Because Patroclus couldn't choose. He was mastered by the fury that Zeus put into him. What choice does Hector have? All of his victories were won by the gods charging in front of him. Zeus and Apollo and Ares and whoever else happened to be there. But at the same token... What 
point has Achilles had sulking in his tent this whole time? What prowess does he really have if he's not being helped by the gods? Fate is binding all of these people, and as we get closer to the end of the Iliad, it's just going to get stronger and stronger, and people are going to get more and more trapped. The end of this book has already been written. It's just a matter of getting there. I look forward to talking about it with you soon.